Hakai Magazine explores science, society, and the environment from a coastal perspective. Today's feature article is The Unique Language of Newfoundland. Isolated in the North Atlantic, the people of Newfoundland and Labrador developed a subtle and beautiful lexicon to describe their environment. By Emily Urquhart, read by me, Heather Walter. It's nearing the spring equinox, and Ryan Snodden, meteorologist for the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation in Newfoundland and Labrador, calls for a change in the weather. Let's hope this is Sheila, he says in an early morning webcast. He's referencing St. Patrick's wife, who, according to local folklore, is responsible for administering the final brush of snow across the land before spring. It might be an overly optimistic forecast in this storm-battered corner of the North Atlantic, but Snowden can be certain of one thing. His viewers will understand this piece of regional lingo. It's one of thousands of terms employed only in Canada's most easterly province, where language and landscape are deeply intertwined. The cache of words used to describe Newfoundland and Labrador's natural environment is as vast and wide as the province itself. Geographic, atmospheric, vocational, poetic, and like most of life lived along the coast, weather dependent. Known as the rock for its jagged coastlines and impenetrable soil, the island of Newfoundland and its mainland counterpart, Labrador, was the first North American stop for an array of European peoples whose histories and vocabularies intertwined in this remote new world. Meanwhile, the indigenous people, Inuit and Innu in Labrador, Mi'kmaq in West and Central Newfoundland, had their own rich languages from which the newcomers occasionally borrowed. Missing, however, were the words of the Beothic, the indigenous people of the island who were wiped out, along with their language, by the early 19th century. Scraps of their vocabulary were transcribed by the settlers, albeit poorly, but none of their words were adopted into spoken English. The origins of European settlement began with the arrival of explorer John Cabot, who reached the island of Newfoundland in 1497 and claimed it for England. Cabot returned to Europe with astonishing tales about the abundance of cod. The waters were so thick with fish, the mythology goes, that you could walk across their backs to reach the shore. Drawn by the aquatic bounty, the Basque, French, Spanish, Portuguese, Irish, and West Country English followed, fishing the waters that surrounded the island and Labrador. What were initially seasonal fishing stations grew to permanent communities called outports by the late 18th century. The tiny settlements ringed the shoreline and were connected only by the sea. It wasn't until 1949 that the region got its first major highway when Newfoundland and Labrador, then still part of the British Dominion, joined Canada. Language bloomed in this isolation, inspired by the wild and unfamiliar environment and influenced by old world cultures. Words arrived from everywhere. Spanish fishermen brought bacalao, their name for cod. Dwai, to describe a short, sudden storm, was imported from West Country English. A local trickster was called a Slovene, adopted from Irish. The newcomers picked up on terms already tied to place, like tabanask, an anglicized Innu language term for toboggan, and the Mi'kmaq word babish or babish, referring to the stretched animal hide used in the crisscrossed base of snowshoes, as well as sina, 
the word the Inuit used to describe the edge of a floating ice field. But Sina wasn't enough. There were so many types of ice and snow in the coastal waters where the early fishermen hauled in their catch. Naming these unfamiliar formations, the soft ice close to shore, or lolly, or a mass of ice and snow in seawater, called a slob, was paramount to survival. Because of this, language was often occupational and rooted in the culture of the fishery, hence the plethora of terms used to describe every stage of seal development, from white coat, baby, to ragged jacket, immature, and bedlam, middle-aged, to dotard, old. For a weather forecaster like Snodden, language is similarly important and tied to vocation. Along with Sheila's brush, he regularly peppers his weather reports with local terms. Overcast, damp, and foggy days are mozzie, and he constantly calls for RDF, the regional acronym used for rain, drizzle, and fog. So far, he hasn't managed to use glitter, the term for freezing rain that accretes as ice on branches and wires, or fairy squall, a sudden gust of wind that seems to come from nowhere, as if conjured by supernatural forces. As a transplant from Ontario, Snodden is careful to learn the words first so he can integrate them in a way that seems natural. Snodden says, you kind of want to almost get your street cred before you try and use those kinds of words. You don't want to make it just seem that you're saying them for the sake of saying them. Why Newfoundland and Labrador has its own lexicon, and why so many of the province's words relate to the coastal environment, is both obvious and complex, says folklorist Philip Hiscock of Memorial University. The farther people were from the authoritative culture of St. John's, the province's capital, but also of Britain and Canada, the less it mattered. So there's a grammar of place at play in the regional dialect. Hiscock says... The words that are important to you are the ones that reflect right here and now. So they're going to vary. They're going to change and they're going to be imbued with a sense of locality. Hiscock says that Newfoundlanders and Labradorians have a love of language, in particular local language, and this has contributed to what he calls the aesthetic or poetic value of their vocabulary. He cites the word silver thaw, which, like glitter, is used to describe the ice that forms on trees when rain falls near the freezing mark. Another factor in the development of their distinct dialect is Newfoundland and Labrador's strong oral tradition. These stories were often born of hardship, adversity, and perseverance in the face of poverty, with plot points that reflected a lingering feudal system that saw rural fishing families beholden to the capricious elements and merchants in larger centres. These narratives were inspired by a world that was both harsh and beautiful, good and bad, the dichotomy at the heart of all great tales. Stories, like songs, are told with cadence and tone, timing, and most importantly, attention to language. Perhaps there simply weren't enough words to describe the erratic weather and rock-lashed land, the complex history of the people who settled there, and the boundless sea that surrounded them. Maybe the regional lexicon was not simply the result of limitation, the isolation of the outports, but a response to the limitlessness of the natural and social landscape. The vocabulary is fluid, it's an ongoing dialogue, and it's as captivating and elusive as the Newfoundland fairies. 
Preservation efforts are constantly underway, from the buys, read dudes, on George Street outdoing one another with local slang, to the academics who collect and study this kind of talk like specimens in a jar. But it's the artists who've cornered the market on heritage language in the province. Marlene Kreitz, for example, captures the language of the natural world in her poetry and visual art, which are equal parts aesthetic and political. And what wordsmith could resist terms like glim, a light seen across a distant ice field, or swatch, a rivulet of open water in ice? There is an onomatopoeic quality to these words that lends itself to lyrical language. Sketch, for the thin layer of ice that rests on the water. Sish, both the word that describes a boat running through slushy water and the resulting sound. You can hear the crackle in brickle ice, which is easily shattered. Way ice is more straightforward in that a vessel can navigate its broken pans. These are some of the terms featured in Crete's recently published book, Brickle, Nish, and Knobly, a Newfoundland treasury of terms for ice and snow. Crete's, whose work is in collections across the country, including the National Gallery of Canada, has been working in what she calls landscape literacy for three decades. It's a mix of performance art, poetry, and photography, with landscape and language as the connecting threads. She says, What goes unnamed largely goes unseen. Knowing the terms helps us actually see different phenomena, instead of winter being just a cold white blur. For her most recent project, Kreitz made an inventory of snow and ice words, and then photographed real-world illustrations in Conception Bay and Blast Hole Pond near where she lives. Like artifacts in a museum, she preserves these words and displays them for future generations. Logophiles, like Crete's, have been cataloging Newfoundland and Labrador's words for centuries, but the best-known and most prolific collection is the Dictionary of Newfoundland English. A joint venture of scholars, W.J. Kerwin, G.M. Story, and J.D.A. Widowson, based out of Memorial University of Newfoundland, it was published in the early 1980s after more than two decades of research. The dictionary defines each word and includes spelling variants, but also offers insight into the culture, culling from both oral and written sources, and including snippets of these texts as illustrations of how the terms might be used. It allows the reader to envision the words in situ as they might exist in a casual conversation. This is helpful for the layperson, as many of the words in the Dictionary of Newfoundland English are no longer in popular use, and others are regional, so specific that common terms in one bay are unheard of in the next. Along the southern coast of Labrador, a floater is a migratory fisherman. He could also be called a rumor, as he sets up a seasonal fishing room to work from but a room might also be referred to as a station, and thus the rumor or floater might also be a stationer. Words like rumor, floater, and stationer largely disappeared from the vocabulary as technology progressed and the economy changed. When the fishery moved from an inshore, family-based industry to commercial fleets, there were no longer beach masters, the person responsible for curing and drying fish, or dressers, the person who removes the backbone, head, and guts of the fish. The enormous trawlers didn't use the small knot of boulders fastened with twigs, called achillic, that had anchored the smaller punts. Overfishing by these outsized vessels led the Canadian government to impose a moratorium on codfishing in 1992. 
It was a cultural loss as much as an economic hit, and language was just one of the many casualties. Meanwhile, climate change may increase the occurrence of ice storms in the province, so words like silverthaw and glitter could enjoy a resurgence or at least retain their rank in the regional vernacular. When the Dictionary of Newfoundland English editors first began compiling the dictionary in the 1950s, they saw joining Confederation with Canada as one of the main threats to Newfoundland and Labrador's unique lexicon. Then-Premier Joey Smallwood famously said he would drag Newfoundland kicking and screaming into the 20th century, suggesting that the region was heavily rooted in the past. So a secondary menace were people who felt regional words were outdated, marking Newfoundlanders as inferior and thus not worthy of preservation. The distasteful Newfie jokes that mimicked the island's dialect and depicted inhabitants as hapless goofs are, thankfully, dying out in the rest of Canada where they were once popular. Case in point, what's black and blue and floats in the harbour? The last mainlander who told a Newfie joke. The aim of the dictionary was to create a word storehouse from which scholars, but perhaps more importantly Newfoundlanders from all backgrounds, could draw. The resulting dictionary largely achieved its goals, as even more than an academic resource, writers, artists and musicians also find inspiration in its pages. And so does the general public. The Dictionary of Newfoundland English often finds a place of reverence on living room to coffee tables, from Muddy Hole to Joe Bat's Arm. It's been reprinted 17 times since it was first published in 1982, and the second edition alone sold 10,000 copies. Across the province, speakers are repurposing the language as a way of asserting their roots. Along with his uniform, a tour guide might slip on an Irish-sounding brogue and sprinkle his speech with Newfoundlandese while performing for tourists. Or it might be a routine adopted among peers proving your insider status by using words like touten, a traditional food of deep-fried bread with syrup, or calling mosquitoes nippers. It's a linguistic secret handshake that's often accompanied by putting on a thick regional accent. Hiscock explains that if you say it in the right situation, you're kind of underscoring your difference from others and your pride and your competence in this alternate culture. It's a small-scale language revival, some words will persist in this way, and others will remain a historical mark, an entry in the 770-page dictionary. And, as in the case of the Beothic, some are lost entirely. We will never know what words for ice, mountains, storms, flora and fauna, and more disappeared with this culture. Hiscock says, you can't really save a language, but you can renovate it in certain ways. It's a little like tearing down an old building and saving the wood and the windows so that other people can put it to use in their places. As the fishery continues to decline and some of the language goes with it, words are being used in new ways. They appear in visual art, music and literature, in the names of businesses, restaurants and cultural ventures across the province, and of course in the daily weather forecast. There's one word that Snodden admires above all others and hopes to incorporate into his newscasts. Screecher. It's used to describe a howling wind or storm. Snodden asks, I've been thinking, could I pull it off? Then he dons his newscaster voice and tries it out. There's a real screecher of a wind out there today. 
He's silent for a beat. I wonder how many people would really know what I was talking about. When storm season approaches in the North Atlantic, Snodden will have plenty of occasions to try it out. Maybe he'll be responsible for bringing Screecher back into the local lexicon, putting his own twist on the word, claiming it, and just as he does this, also setting it free. Find more coastal news and stories from Hakai Magazine on our website at hakaimagazine.com or follow us on Twitter or Facebook. All of our feature stories are part of the Hakai Magazine Audio Edition podcast, which you can subscribe to through your favorite podcast app. If you enjoyed this story, please consider sharing it with your friends.